This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Media Matters, The Tom Hartman Program, Jim Hightower, The Onion Radio News, Slate Magazine, and comedian Lee Camp with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from markfiore.com. There is an ongoing argument in this very country about how best to close the enormous deficit that we have incurred. The Republicans have proposed doing it entirely through spending cuts, whereas the Democrats have bravely fought back insisting we do it almost entirely through spending cuts. (laughs) Well, this week, bizarrely unexcentric billionaire Warren Buffett entered the fray. The billionaire says, while most Americans struggle to make ends meet, we mega-rich continue to get our extraordinary tax breaks. My friends and I have been coddled long enough. I pay a lower tax rate on much of my income than my cleaning lady does. Well, to be fair, Warren Buffett's cleaning lady is also a billionaire. (laughs) Warren Buffett's op-ed was a thoughtful treatise on the advantages the super-wealthy currently enjoy at the hands of the tax code. Or, to put that another way... Up next tonight, Warren Buffett, Class Warfare. More class warfare from an affable billionaire who should stop assuming the rich are all billionaires. Warren Buffett wrote an op-ed. Is he completely a socialist? Is Warren Buffett a socialist? You really have no clue what socialism is, do you? Hey, hey, that George Clooney always banging different broads. What a queer. So, so closing, closing a few corporate tax loopholes and returning the top marginal tax rate to the 90s economic boom time levels is class warfare. And if there's one thing the rich have learned, it's that class warfare is hell. He invoked the corporate jet class. So that's that's a whole new category of of people to demonize, right? Soak the rich, it's their fault. Barack Obama's tax on these evil, disgusting corporate jet owners. Demonizing the rich as, as evil, as lazy, as inheritors of their wealth. He's saying they're fat cats. It's disappointing. It's a... It's class warfare, and it's the kind of language that you would expect from a leader of a third world country, not the president of the United States. It's true, because the United States of America is not a third world country by any measure, except perhaps income inequality, (laughs) where we rank worse than the Ivory Coast, worse than Cameroon, 64th, ah, in your face, Uruguay, Jamaica, and Uganda. Uganda? Yeah. Uganda. Yeah. Keep trying, Rwanda. Wow. And by the way, not only is closing corporate loopholes, you are a nerd crowd. There is no doubt in my mind. (laughs) 
By the way, not only is closing corporate loopholes and raising the marginal tax rate class warfare, it totally wouldn't even work. You can tax rich people all you want, and you're not going to solve, solve our problems. I, I the idea that if we raise taxes, as the president said, on millionaires and billionaires, raise taxes on oil companies, raise taxes on owners of private jets, that that somehow is going to make a difference. The president uh, wants to raise the top two income tax rates, which would raise about $700 billion over 10 years. You know what? That's only a tiny fraction of the federal government's deficit. $700 billion over 10 years. <laughs> That's less money than Warren Buffett's cleaning lady pulls out of his shower drain every week. Just talking about the free market, glad to take a tax dollar, suck the fat ass pockets. We got socialism for the rich, bootstraps for the poor. First priority is that the fat cats profit. So we said, let's get that black man of the people in office. Unspoiled, not yet corrupted, he ain't having it. And just how quick can the poison seep in? As soon as Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch can infiltrate the cabinet and stream right wing media will never lean left. Forget the pretense of a recession. The Wall Street left us all in. Middle class hit the hardest. Golden parachutes for the fallen captains of industry. The corruption erupts from the den of thieves. So they asked Trump uh, on Good Morning America about uh, Warren Buffett's uh, article in the New York Times saying tax the rich. He had some funny comments and some interesting comments. First on oil. If you go back to certain companies, for us to be subsidizing oil companies is absolutely insane. And frankly, the oil companies really facilitate OPEC. The worst abuser we have is OPEC. Sounds like this is where you part company with the Tea Party and, and many in the House. You would be willing to close those loopholes on the oil companies as part of a deficit. Oh, absolutely. I think when explained to the Tea Party, I can't imagine anybody's going to stick up for ExxonMobil or some of these big oil companies that are making a fortune and paying relatively little in tax. Well, you lack imagination, my friend. 100% of the Republican Party sticks up for those oil subsidies. How do I know? They took a vote. Every single Republican said to maintain the oil subsidies. They range from 40 to $70 billion in subsidies over the next decade. We're doing all these cutting and we can't cut that? That's supposed to incentivize them to drill for oil. They make more money than literally than any other company in the world. They have all the incentive in the world. Even Donald Trump can't defend it, right? But all the Republican Party does. He's right about the voters. The voters don't defend it, but the politicians do because they get paid by ExxonMobil. Now, the second part of this is a little amusing. L listen to the wordplay here. I can also tell you that a lot of people will go elsewhere to do business if you start taxing. And I deal with Wall much for a billionaire. Well, I deal with Wall Street all the time. You're going to have a mass exodus, but yeah, I'd be willing. I put country first. A lot of people don't necessarily put country first. They're going to say, but thank you very much, President Obama. It? It's very unpatriotic. They're not patriotic. In many cases, they're not patriotic. They're business machines. And they're going to say, thank you very much, George. I appreciate you letting us know we're moving to Switzerland. More than, and then you know how much you get? Nothing. All right. Now, understand Trump is totally disingenuous, okay? He says, oh, I'd be patriotic and I'd pay more taxes like Warren Buffett suggests. But, you know, other people won't. They'll, have, they'll move out of the country. Then we won't get anything. So what can I do? All right, fine. Let's keep taxes really low for rich people like me. 
So I don't believe him for a second when he says patriotically he would pay. Look, if they raise his taxes, he'd have to pay more taxes. Otherwise, he'd go to jail. So yes, he would pay the taxes, right? But it's not like he wants the taxes raised for himself. You could tell. It's obvious, right? Now, having said that, look at how Warren Buffett has changed the conversation, though. And that's why I was so excited when I saw that op-ed that I thought it was so important. Okay, Because now he's got Donald Trump talking about corporate machines that only care about profits and that are not patriotic at all. And that part is absolutely true. So all of a sudden, the American population is being exposed to the idea of, hey, you know what? Oil companies are getting subsidies they don't deserve, and corporate machines don't give a damn about you. They're not American, and they're not patriotic, and they will try to avoid American taxes at all costs. Now, are, that, are those the people that we should be catering to? And why are our politicians catering to those guys? Those are important questions, and I love that Warren Buffett brought those to the fore so we can have that discussion. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. So $700 billion of raised revenue over 10 years ain't even worth the effort. I assume these folks have the same why bother attitude towards low-level spending cuts. A national endowment for the arts, national endowment for the humanities, all those kind of frivolous things, those should all be on the chopping block. Federal employees don't pay for parking, so if they just no. set up a parking for that, that'd get them $140 million. He doesn't have to waste your tax dollars and travel around in a $1.1 million luxury liner. Why are we spending $6 million? Why are we spending $1 million on the First Lady? you got to start somewhere. Even when we talk about NPR, a million dollars here, that's a million dollars. Oh, so when you cut it, it's a million dollars. But when you tax it, it's $700 I mean, all we'd have to do to raise $700 billion is cut 700,000 NPRs. It's almost too easy. But if it's revenue you want, there does happen to be another place, instead of the rich, that you can look for it. Warren Buffett are writing how the rich should pay more taxes, but saying not a word about the half of American households that pay no income taxes at all. Is that fair when half the population pays absolutely nothing? 51%, that's a majority of American households, paid no income tax in 2009. Zero. Zip. Nada. Many of them get so much money in tax credits that it wipes out any social security taxes or medicare taxes they're paying they are absolutely on a free ride you hear that pores <laughs> the free ride está over <laughs> so it looks like you'll be walking to work assuming you have a job chances are you probably don't have a job so why are you asking us for a ride 
the solution to our economic problem, the solution to our economic problem isn't taxing the rich. It's broaden the tax base. Everyone needs to pay something. Before you start demanding one group pay more, maybe get everyone to put skin in the game. That's the problem with poor people. They still have some of their skin. <laughs> but you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe Fox is right. Maybe the bottom 50% of Americans, while they already pay excise and payroll and Medicare taxes, do need to pay more. I mean, they can spare it. After all, they control 2.5% of our nation's wealth. Oh, you know what? Actually, this is a pretty easy calculation. We could do this. The bottom 50% is just simple math. In dollar figures, the bottom 50% of this country have $1.45 trillion in everything they own on this earth. <laughs> so let's see. They have $1.45 trillion. So what do you say we take, I don't know, half of that? That'd be, oh, look at this, $700 billion. <laughs> Why does that figure sound so familiar? The president uh, wants to raise the top two income tax rates, which would raise about $700 billion over 10 years. You know what? That's only a tiny fraction of the federal government's deficit. So raising the income tax rate on the top 2% of earners would raise $700 billion, but taking half of everything the bottom 50% have in this country would do the same. I see the problem here. We need to take all of what the bottom 50% have. All of it. It's the only way to make a significant dent. Now we're up to 1.4 trillion. And if you're worried about the poors, don't. Because they're defined by the census as a family of four making less than $22,350 a year. Four. $22,350 a year. They'll be fine. Poor families in the United States are not what they used to be. When you look at the actual living conditions of the 43 million people that the census says are poor, you see that in fact they have all these modern conveniences. 99% of them have a refrigerator. 99% have refrigerators. You food-chilling mother How dare you! That's why it makes complete sense that the word poor in that graphic is in quotations. <laughs> These people aren't poor, they're... I'm sure the other 1% of those people who don't have refrigerators don't have them, not because they don't have food, because they're always ordering room service. <laughs> These poor people are living like they just want to showcase showdown. 81% have a microwave, 78% have air conditioning, 63% have cable TV, 54% have cell phones, 48% have a coffee maker, 25% have a dishwasher. 25% of a dishwasher? Although to be fair, after a 12-hour shift of washing dishes, the last thing you want is to bring your work home with you. So you see... The problem with increasing the marginal tax rate on the rich and closing some corporate tax loopholes isn't that it engages in class warfare. It's that it's fighting on the wrong side of the war.
It is all out war on the productive class in our society for the benefit of the moocher class. The makers and the takers. They want to take it from somebody else. Everyone's jumping in the wagon. No one wants to pull. Parasites we have out there dependent on government. The raccoons. They're not stupid. They're going to say they're going to do the easy way if we make it easy for them, just like welfare recipients all across America. Welfare will create a generations of utterly irresponsible animals. Yeah. <laughs> those people. <laughs> the poor. politician running for national office today who isn't screaming jobs jobs and jobs partly that's because they know that's what people want to hear and that many are not only jobless but almost dumb with fear about future prospects for employment when i hear such promises i'm reminded of the line said by actor mel brooks in his 1974 comedy blazing saddles brooks playing governor william j lepetamate says we got to protect our phony baloney jobs. Every politician barking today knows that truly good jobs, except for those especially skilled, are gone for good. That's largely because of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which stripped many, many jobs from the manufacturing sector. And at bottom, it ain't really about jobs. It's about living wages, something no politician is addressing. The bottom line is corporate America is sitting on some 2.2 trillion, that's trillion with a T in capital, that could easily employ the 28 million people who are unemployed, underemployed, and out of the workforce. They don't want to. And no politician, not even the President of the United States, is willing or able to make them do so. So they talk about phony baloney jobs because that's all that's left. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Seth Michaels. Fox Business host Eric Bowling is now lamenting the negative potential economic consequences of S&P's downgrade of the U.S. credit rating. Tom, I'm watching the uh, futures right now trade down 215 points. So we're at 300 points in the middle of the night. Any way you slice it, this downgrade can't be good for America. This is really, really scary because if S&P were to go to another negative notch down in credit, Fitch and Moody's would have to likely have to follow suit at least one, one down. During the debt ceiling negotiations, Bowling repeatedly cheered for the U.S. to default, which experts agreed not only would have led to a downgrade, but also would have had disastrous economic consequences. Really, I say, let them default. Really, let them go. 
What's going to happen? You're a brave guy. What's going to happen? Armageddon's going to happen. How is it going to be Armageddon? So uh, is the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, covering up the crimes that were committed by the banksters back in 2006, 2007, well, throughout the decade of the aughts that led to the great, uh, you know, George W. Bush banking crisis and crash? Uh, it sure looks that way. Uh, you know, w w the story that uh, we did this week uh, reports that um, over a period of uh, about 17 years, dating back to 1993, the SEC was uh, systematically and as a matter of policy shredding its own uh, intelligence, its own files. So uh, what this really meant was um, any time a complaint went into the SEC or, you know, information about suspicious trades, they would work the case a little bit. If it didn't turn into a full-blown investigation, if it got rejected by the people up high, uh, the investigators were instructed to destroy the files. So there's no record now of... Uh, perhaps as many as uh, 18,000 cases. Is that standard operating principle in other investigative agencies like the <laughs> FBI, for example? No, no. I mean, in fact, it's just the opposite. Uh, you know, most law enforcement uh, agencies nationwide now are increasingly relying upon uh, this uh, data-based uh, model of, of investigating crime. So, you know, if you have an open burglary, you know, you want to put as much information as you can about that case in and you put it into the computers and you and you watch for patterns and that's exactly what the SEC wasn't doing. They'd have an insider trading case, they would work it for a little bit, then they would shred all their evidence that they gathered and, and so companies that committed the same crime over and over again, um, you know, the, the record of that wasn't going to be there anymore. Now, you know, shredding is kind of an old technology. It involves paper. Right. Um, are there digital records of these things? I no. mean, I'm, I'm, ass I'm assuming this stuff has been kept di digitally since the 90s. No, no. I mean, I think uh, the, the, the upshot of the story is, and we don't know exactly what they mean when they say disposed of, um, but the, the, the upshot of it is that there's, there's nothing left of these cases except uh, an entry, like a line item, that said that uh, registers the opening and closing date of the case uh, and the, the company involved or the individual involved and what generally the case was about. So you'd have an entry that would say, for instance, Lehman Brothers, you know, October 2002, uh, financial fraud, and, and that's it. That's all that's left of the case. Whatever, whatever evidence wow. was gathered doesn't exist anywhere digitally or in paper. Why... You said this started around '93, right? And and the the Securities and Exchange Commission, of course, was created. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was 1935 or '36 by Franklin Roosevelt to oversee the stock market. In fact, right. didn't and he Joe make? Kennedy was yeah, involved with that, yeah. yeah my, my old friend Gloria Swanson, who he swindled her out of a lot of money back when he was her her um, agent and lover, told me just horror stories about uh, Joe Kennedy, and she and she told me, and I you know I've since seen it in other places, so it's probably apocryphal, but she told me that Joe told her that uh, FDR told him that he put him in charge of the SEC because it takes a crook to catch a crook. <laughs> and, yeah. So, in any case, the, the SEC has been around for a long time, and they've been looking for criminals on Wall Street for a long time. Why, in 1993, did they start doing what, by any definition of law enforcement, would be uh, insane? Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the big mystery uh, of this story and it's, it's obviously 
to me a little bit troubling that I that I haven't been able to get an answer on that. I think I think there are two possible explanations for why why this went on. Um, you know, one one argument that I heard from and it was pure speculation from some of my sources was uh, that this this began as an accident. Um, you know, somebody accidentally uh, issued this injunction, but that the hires, uh, you know, the people uh, high up in the in the agency discovered that it might be useful to no longer have the records around of incompetent investigations. So they just never never you know overturned the policy. I think the other explanation, and this is the one that that I I tend to lean toward a little bit more, is that you know the people who run the SEC are you know by and large uh, sort of high priced political appointees who come from Wall Street. They they are ex bankers. They are ex banker lawyers, and I think you know they're the idea of records no longer existing uh, of failed investigations. I think it appeals generally to the to, to Wall Street, and I think a lot of these people. Maybe it began as an accidental policy, but I think once they realized that that uh, you know a bank would be investigated and there would be no record uh, of what went on with that investigation, I just don't think that the people who are running the SEC have the political will or the appetite to reverse that policy. You know, when you said '93, the thing that immediately jumped into my mind, and and. I'm operating off memory here, which is a very imperfect tool. Mm. It's been probably six or seven years since I, I read a, a fairly comprehensive book about you know the fall of Enron. But um, my recollection is that was right around the time that Wendy Graham was on the put on the board of Enron, and Enron started getting very very politically active at the federal level, and her husband Phil Graham started proposing legislation that eventually became the uh, Graham Leach Bliley and the Commodity Futures Modernization Act right. in 99 and 2001 that uh, you know were you know containing the, the Enron loophole that were designed basically to allow Enron to get into the banking business in a in a much bigger way and to use the commodities the principally energy that it was trading but to expand into other other things and continue their you know this was you know Ken lay on steroids and I you know if I was tracking this back, I'd be looking at Wendy Graham, Phil Graham, and Ken Lay in the, in the early 90s. Well, sure, I mean, and obviously and, in the early 90s, that's when Enron, you know, asked the SEC for its, uh, you know, what became a notorious opinion that, the you know, you can book future revenue as, as current revenue. Right. So, uh, and, and future and, losses as current losses against taxes. Right, exactly. And uh, that, you're right, that was, you know, I think if my memory serves me correctly, that was 93 or 94. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of things going on back at that time. Um, I, 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 the only thing I got out of the SEC that was a bit mysterious, and I asked them where this policy came from, they, they you know, the only, they told me that it was a female person. They didn't, they didn't elaborate who it was. So um, Within the SEC? Yeah. Who, yeah. who made this policy? Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's uh, uh, go with the kind of um, uh, contemporary democratic uh, worldview that we've had basically since uh, Nixon was pardoned, which is let's buy, let's let bygones be bygones and learn from them. Right? Uh, is the SEC changing this policy now? Yeah, they, they. What happened was, you know, and this story came to my attention because a whistleblower came forward to Congress and and sort of uh, detailed all these accusations um, earlier this year. But he came forward to the SEC last year when he discovered he had been he was a lawyer who was reassigned to a department where he was in charge of maintaining records. When he discovered the problem, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he he told an outside agency, the National Archives, about this problem, right. and um, after that, the SEC did change its policy. They're no longer they're no longer disposing of these records. So you know, at the very least, that's going on. But the problem is that you know the damage is kind of done. I think you know yeah. from from the standpoint of law enforcement, you're looking back at the last ten years, and you know if you want to look back and see what uh, Goldman Sachs or Sac Capital or Citigroup, what any what any of those companies are up to, you're just missing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Eric Schneiderman, who is the New York Attorney General, uh, is not accepting a deal where Bank of America and three other major banks uh, would uh, pay out $20 billion for how they have mishandled the servicing of mortgage their mortgage operations. Okay, So now they've done many things wrong here, but this is one facet of what they did wrong. They struck a $20 billion deal. The problem is, in that deal it says that they will then have basically amnesty for all that they have done wrong in in regards to those mortgages and the mortgage securities. Now, Schneiderman is leading the effort to say, hey, you know what, that's a bad idea. Why are we giving them blanket amnesty when we didn't even investigate the other fields where they might have done things wrong, where we know almost certainly that they did massive things wrong, right? Now, the rest of the government doesn't like this. And Schneiderman has now led a revolt where uh, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Delaware are all saying, the attorney generals in those places are saying, hey, you know what, Uh, I think he's right. I think we need to investigate this fully before we let these major banks off the hook. Uh, And, of course, the size of the screw-up for the mortgage securities is in the hundreds of billions. So, and the banks aren't going to agree to a $20 billion payout if they think their liability isn't much, much larger, right? But... Of course, as usual, here comes the American federal government to help out the banks. So they're putting a world of pressure on Schneiderman. There's a great article in the New York Times about it. They have sent in people from the Justice Department, uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York specifically, and from the uh, Housing and Urban Development uh, to go in and talk to Schneiderman and say, hey, you know what? Come on, man. Let's make a deal. So the main guy from HUD is Sean Donovan. He was trying to persuade Schneiderman to uh, make sure they get the deal, and they use the same exact language as the Justice Department did. Uh, They say, well, you know, it's not that we care about the banks. It's that the homeowners are suffering every day, and you're holding it up. We need to get relief to those homeowners right away. That is our only concern. It's funny how they've 
uh, all ha- have the same exact message, all those different departments that are trying to get the one guy fighting the banks to stop fighting the banks. But it's for the homeowners. But we find out what their real motivation is when we see Catherine Wild, uh, member of the board of Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, talk to uh, Schneider. Uh, and she says um, that her interaction with him was not unpleasant. Others describe it as very unpleasant. Basically, they sent her in to yell at him at a funeral. Former governor of New York had died. He's coming out of the funeral, and she accosts him. So what's her motivation? Well, she's on the record. Here's what she had to say. Quote, it is of concern to the industry that instead of trying to facilitate resolving these issues, you seem to be throwing a wrench into it. Wall Street is our main street. Love them or hate them. They are important and we have to make sure we are doing everything we can to support them. Unless they're doing something indefensible. And there we have it. That's the real answer. Okay. That's not talking about homeowners. That's talking about the industry and how important Wall Street is and how the government's job is to help support them. Unless they're doing something indefensible, which is, by the way, exactly what this is about. That's why Schneider is holding it up, because it's indefensible that they robbed all these people for all this time. Do you know that in New York, again, Schneiderman's home state, the New York posted a study where they found out in their little random sampling that of the houses that were being foreclosed, 92% of them did not have proper documentation. So nobody even knows in some of the cases whether the people own the, uh, the bank actually owned that house, whether they got the mortgage in the right way, whether they were foreclosing on the right house. 92%. Yeah, that's what I would call indefensible. So, Schneiderman, let me tell you something, man. Don't listen to any of these clowns from the Obama administration or from anywhere else. They are 100% in league with the banks. Their view is the view of Tim Geithner, which is that as the, uh, go the banks, goes the economy. That view is uh, totally wrong. And it is designed to get more and more money into the hands of very few corporate executives at those banks, which, by the way, in 2009 and 2010, made record profits and took home record bonuses again. Okay? And that's what they're trying to protect, not the homeowners and not anyone else. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster-ass nigga plays his cards right. A real gangster-ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth, cause real gangster-ass niggas don't start fights. And niggas always got a high cap. Showing all his boys how we shot them. But real gangster-ass niggas don't flex nuts, cause real gangster-ass niggas know they got them. And everything's cool in the mind of a gangster Cause gangsta-ass niggas think deep Up 365, ayo, 24-7 Cause real gangsta-ass niggas don't sleep If Rick Snyder ever comes to help you Run away as fast and as far as you can Snyder is the right-wing corporate-hugging governor of Michigan whose extremist anti-worker, anti-government agenda was handed to him by a coke-funded front group named the Mackinac Center Included in the package was a doozy of autocratic mischief-making called the Local Government Fiscal Accountability Act. The new law turned Snyder into a perverse hybrid of a Soviet czar and a ten-horned banana republic potentate, and it has infuriated the public. Now trying to backpedal, the governor's new line is that it's about helping communities. Helping? 
This law allows him to seize control of any city, county, school district, etc., that he decides is in fiscal trouble, authorizing him to appoint an emergency manager, which may be a private corporation, to run the entity. This autocratic region is empowered to cancel labor contracts, repeal the public budget, privatize government assets, dismiss elected officials, and even dissolve the local entity. This is the kind of help that a fox brings to the hen house. So the governor is now being sued by his own astonished citizenry. Snyder's tyrannical law, they point out, violates the state's constitution by usurping the right of local residents to elect their officials. As the director of a community legal group in Detroit puts it, the governor's designated emergency manager would control all, including the right to enact or repeal local ordinances. This is Jim Hightower saying, you might be thinking, thank goodness I don't live in Michigan. But if Snyder's anti-democratic coup succeeds there, you can bet that various Koch-backed right-wing front groups will bring the Michigan model to your state. For information on the Michigan fight, contact Detroit's Sugar Law Center at www.sugarlaw.org. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. It's the Onion Radio News. The vice president of making your job harder is given a raise. This is Doyle Redland reporting. According to the buzz around the office, that guy Hank, the vice president of making your job harder, received a sizable raise today. Hank, who has been doing a first-rate job of screwing you over at every turn for the past two years, has also successfully reduced you to talking to yourself out loud. God damn it. All Hank does around here is screw things up so and then I have to stay late and fix them. And he shows up in the morning and writes my ass when things aren't done. At this rate, you've pretty much decided you'll never get promoted from the position of assistant vice president of cleaning up other people's messes and never getting any goddamn credit. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Today's article is called Obama's FDR Moment. It's written by Elliot Spitzer. 
President Obama should heed the famous wisdom of FDR, quote, above all, try something, unquote. Being passive in the face of rising anxiety breeds discontent, doubt, and ultimately contempt. Interestingly, the president's one grand moment to date, his embrace of the plan to capture Osama bin Laden, emerged from a willingness to be bold, even when many of his advisors were counseling otherwise. He defied the more modulated approaches many military advisors recommended, and the payoff, both substantive and political, was huge. The president should take this lesson and apply it to his actions in the domestic arena. First, he should act dramatically to help the American homeowner. There is a continuing and incendiary crisis in the housing market with about 20% of all homes underwater. That is, the mortgage owed on the house is greater than the value of the house. This is dragging down our economy, creating a downward spiral of foreclosures and abandonment. The lack of mortgage reform also reminds every homeowner of the unfairness attached to the bailouts. The banks, in their moment of insolvency and need, got hundreds of billions in direct cash payments, guarantees, and transfers in the form of artificially low interest rates, all of which have led to a massive transfer of wealth from taxpayers and savers to the banks. Yet homeowners who have seen their primary asset drop in value have been given nothing at all by the banks and nothing meaningful by the president. The administration, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve, should insist that the banks, in return for all the taxpayer subsidies they've gotten and continue to receive, reduce any mortgage that exceeds the value of the house. Once it's established that the homeowner is underwater, other variables can be considered to determine how much the mortgage should be reduced. The income of the borrower, the year the mortgage was issued, the behavior of the bank in recommending the mortgage, or the culpability of the borrower in misrepresenting income levels. Borrowers with reduced mortgages would have more money to spend, thus boosting the economy and relieving the housing market of a huge overhang. Owners would regain mobility and the market could set a clearing price. Many also believe that the banks would come out ahead, facing fewer foreclosures, less abandonment, fewer houses stockpiled. In addition, the banks could also receive a piece of the upside when and if owners sell their houses for more than the value of the reduced mortgage. How much of the upside could be worked out with rules designed to encourage rational behavior by all parties? If the bank got 100% of the price above the value of the mortgage, there would be no incentive for an owner to charge more. If the bank got only a tiny percentage of the price differential, it would never recoup the amount by which the mortgage had been reduced. The opportunity is to force the banks to give the housing market a shot in the arm, while also allowing them to retain an equity stake that permits them to recoup any short-term loss. The critical point is this. The best way to revive the housing market is to help out the millions of Americans who are underwater on their mortgages. It is also the best way for the president to make it clear he is acting on behalf of the public at large. Second, the president should do more to help the American worker. He should establish a jobs program. Do the simple math. We are spending more than $110 billion annually in Afghanistan. Stop it or scale back to the sort of covert operations and drone war that is warranted. Savings? Perhaps about $100 billion per year. Use that money to create up to 5 million jobs at $20,000 each. With unemployment among those aged 16 to 19 at an astonishing 25%, and unemployment among black people at 15.9%, there is no question that the crisis of unemployment is destroying the fabric of our nation. Those who refuse to work get denied all other benefits. 
Put Jack Welch and Jeff Immelt, former and current CEOs of GE, in charge of using this labor well. Just as FDR did during the Great Depression, put these Americans to work in states, counties, schools, parks. Make them work, but pay them. Get the dollars flowing back into the economy to help pull us out of the Great Recession. And when the unemployment rate dips below an agreed-upon number, indicating that the labor market is healthy again, phase out the program. There are ideas out there. All the president has to do is argue for them. Americans are not used to feeling that we are not masters of our own fate. We are a nation steeped in the idea that we can redirect the course of history at will. What we need at this moment is a president with bold ideas and the passion to fight for them. That was Obama's FDR moment, written by Elliot Spitzer. And the political class, the erection of the massive 30-foot statue of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a cause for celebration. The sculpture showing Dr. King with his arms folded across his chest, a serious look on his face, bears a striking resemblance to the handsome minister. But it appears to celebrate us far more than it celebrates him. The sepia-toned rock memorial much like the media coverage celebrates the King of August 28, 1963, the March on Washington King, the I Have a Dream King, and none other. That is the King that the media, the politicians, and the elites want you to see, to remember, and to celebrate. They want you to remember a man frozen in time, in 1963, ignoring that he lived five whole more years. And like most men, he grew, developed, and changed. In many ways, King was changed by the times, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and yes, the Black Freedom Movement, and the King of 1967, and even 1968, was far different than the man who stood at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did not die at the March on Washington. He lived to become the man who, a year before his assassination, spoke at Riverside Church in New York City, where he decried racism, militarism and rapacious capitalism. Betrayed by his closest associates in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, abandoned by his erstwhile allies among white liberals, vilified in the white corporate press for his anti-war stance, yet did he speak his heart and mind, almost in echo of his German namesake, religious reformer Martin Luther, who said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. If he were alive today, He'd be 82 years old, and he would look at the corporate shills, the war makers, the political class that wages war on the poor, and organize a protest. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal.
This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tyrone Gale. While economic experts agree that the economy is in better shape today than it was when President Obama first took office, Fox News host Bill O'Reilly is still trying to claim that Obama made the economy. Even conservative economist Ben Stein had to disagree with O'Reilly's theory about taxing the rich. If you take then you're helping the recession. You're feeding the flames. That's not of true. It. Sure it is. That isn't true. I mean, there's no correlation. Uh, I'm going to call you Mr. O'Reilly. There's no correlation, Mr. O'Reilly, between tax rates on millionaires and people above that level, billionaires, and the growth of the economy. We, we had the highest growth in capital and in productivity and in the economy generally in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when we had much higher taxes than we had now. Higher taxes yeah, but there historically tax have been correlated with more that. growth. All right. It's the Onion Radio News. A mad scientist's plot is thwarted by budget cuts. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Budget cuts have forced the National Science Foundation to reduce grants to individual recipients, including those of megalomaniacal researcher Dr. Edward Mortis of Brookhaven Laboratories. According to Mortis, the reduced funding will effectively terminate the Armageddon Project, setting back his plans for world domination indefinitely. This is a very dark day indeed for mad science, so don't come crying to me when you need technologies to enslave the human race. Mortis said the cuts will also affect his work on several other efforts, including a hyperchronal disruptor, a polysonic transmogricon, and 100,000 killer robots. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Do you know Alec? You probably do, even though you never heard of it. Yes, it. Not a person. Alec is the acronym for a secretive corporate-funded state policy front group, American Legislative Exchange Council. Alec's exchange is very straightforward. It takes about $6 million a year from corporate powers in exchange for linking them directly to hundreds of right-wing state legislators. Like a speed dating service, Alec convenes two to three dozen private confabs each year, putting corporate executives face to face with lawmakers. In these closed door sessions, the special needs of corporations are matched with eager to please legislators who go back home to push the corporate agenda into state law. If your legislature is suddenly trying to take away workers' bargaining rights, outlaw citizen lawsuits against abusive corporations, 
privatize public schools, reduce corporate income taxes while raising taxes on retirees, and otherwise advance extremist special interest notions that go against the public will and the common good? Chances are you have lawmakers who are carrying bills handed to them in one of Alex's backroom tete-a-tetes. The organization brags that it has some 2,000 state legislators on its membership rolls and that members introduce about 1,000 ALEC bills each legislative session, passing about 200 of them a year. ALEC's insidious agenda is driven by a, quote, private enterprise board made up of such giants as AT&T, ExxonMobil, Coke Industries, Pfizer, and Walmart. This is Jim Hightower saying, Meanwhile, don't bother asking Alec for a list of the legislators who play in its corporate body house. That's a secret, it says. But it's only kept secret from you. The corporate powers know all of Alec's members intimately. Is your own legislator one of them? Well, ask him or her and see if they have the integrity to blush. But I don't I'm not surprised to find that you do. I'm not surprised to find that you do. I know you do. And I feel fine. But I know the same does not apply to you. I know the same does not apply to you. So I guess it all curl up and die too. I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. I was eating lunch with a friend, and he said to me, Lee, being unethical is bad for business, so the large corporations aren't going to do it. I didn't respond immediately because I had to finish pulling a cannoli out of my nasal passage where I had inadvertently snorted it. Being unethical is bad for business? Apparently my friend was Amish and had never heard of Exxon, Shell, Halliburton, Nike, Adidas, Disney, Boeing, Fidelity, JP Morgan Chase, Pfizer, Bank of America, Nestle, Walmart, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and let's see, has BP done anything wrong? I consider collecting and hiding oil-covered dolphin carcasses by the cover of night a mitzvah. So no, I don't think BP has done anything wrong. But the others are some of the most unethical corporations in the world and the most successful. Coca-Cola has had union organizers murdered in South America, but in their defense, the union organizers were demanding two bathroom breaks a day, which, let's face it, little high maintenance. Little high maintenance. Nestle, which owns a large percentage of all bottled water, goes into poor communities, grabs up the water for cheap or free, and then sells it back to the people. Sometimes at prices they can hardly afford. But then again, that might be the right thing to do because the people in places like Pakistan were heavily overwatered before Nestle showed up. Rumor has it they had water flown out their ears because they were fat on water. And there's nothing that disgusts me more than water obesity. I even heard they had so much water they were just bathing in it. Like it just grew on trees or some sh Disney, on the other hand, really loves children. They do. They really love children. So much so that they lovingly give them jobs in their factories in China. But you know what they say, mo money, mo problems. So rather than burden those children with the problems of money, they don't give them any. 
I mean, who can get upset at that? That's just being a good person. Fidelity is largely responsible for the funding of the genocide in Sudan. But you know what? At least they have a positive, upbeat attitude about it. I heard they were thinking of changing their motto to, We put the fun back into funding a genocide. And they've also been serving a lovely, warm apple drink at their headquarters. They're calling it Genocider, which is, you know, cute and self-deprecating. And the, yeah, I love a corporation that doesn't take itself too seriously, so I'm gonna let them off the hook on this one. Another example, the drug manufacturer of Forest Labs was marketing the antidepressant Selexa to children when it wasn't even approved for children. But life's tough for seven-year-olds these days. Sometimes you ask for Pikachu for your birthday and you get Mikachu. And sure, you contemplate taking a rusty razor blade to your wrist. Who wouldn't, you know? Who wouldn't? But luckily, there are strong chemicals designed to alter your core emotions and mental activity. And Forest Labs is there to give you those pills when you're just a toddler. Sure, they might not be safe, and they might not be fully tested, but fully tested is for pussies, and safe is for alright? Real men get brain tumors by age 17, and when they get those brain tumors, it doesn't bother them because they're pumped full of so much Selexa to the point that their brain tumor sounds like a, a good time. Selexa turns brain tumor into brain humor. Of course, my friend could argue that Forest Labs is the perfect example of his point because they got caught for marketing to children and were forced to settle out of court for $300 million, which shows that bad companies get punished. But don't forget that Selexa brought in $2.3 billion in one year alone. So you turn a few kids into vegetables, you pay out $300 million, and you take in $2 billion. Not a bad year on the free market. Being unethical is to making money what human growth hormone is to hitting home runs. Most of you already knew this, alright? Most of you did. But after hearing five people tell me being unethical is bad for business, I couldn't resist taking it on. And even in the case of News Corp, which we're currently watching melt down under its own evil, we'll see. We'll see if this really crushes them or if it merely slows down their media takeover. And even if a couple of editors go to jail or whatnot, Rupert Murdoch will still be one of the richest men alive. So tell him that being unethical is bad for business. non-vegan comment. Yay! Um, it's about uh, campaign finance reform, and I really think it is the key, as a lot of people have been saying, to actual progressive change, because when you survey people, and Cenk Uger does this all the time, he says basically America's progressive. Look at what they want in the poll. You know what? Politicians see what they want to see, and they they do what they need to do what they feel they need to do to get reelected. So maybe the only thing that goes hand in hand with the campaign finance reform is uh, term limits. Because as long as the chief goal of your term in office is to get reelected, 
you're going to listen to the people. And I'm not saying they're doing this consciously. I'm not saying that our politicians feel bought out. I'm just saying that when money buys access and when people talk to you, you tend to listen to what they have to say. And I just thought of a great uh, campaign ad that I don't know who would run this. Anybody looking to overturn Citizens United might want to run this. You basically have a, you know, a legislator on one side of a table, and you have a bunch of common Americans and a lobbyist on the other side of the table. And while the Americans are talking, and you could have all sort of diverse groups talking, uh, you know, people that are obviously sort of your your archetype hippie, people that are obviously your cattle rancher, people that are obviously you know, whatever kind of different Americans you want. And while they're talking, the le- the lobbyist just starts putting out piles of money on the table until it blocks off the view of the common American and just sort of focuses the view, like uh, just narrows the view down to the only person that the uh, that the legislature can see is the lobbyist. And I, I wish I had money to uh, produce that and put something like that on the air, but I just think that would be cool. Hi, Jay. This is Nick from Santa Clara. Just calling because um, I, I wanted to kind of stand up for your anonymous caller who's been getting a lot of crap lately for what he said about the whole vegetarianism argument. Um, not so much that I necessarily agree with what he said, but but that he's been getting a lot of name calls, uh, name name calling directed at him from a lot of your your other callers. Things like moron, lunatic, crazy stuff like that. I just want to point out that that. Those kinds of words and those kinds of name calling are are personal attacks, and I, I think I would be in line with most of your your listeners' opinions if if I say that personal attacks don't really have uh, too much of a place in in reasonable, rational, uh, reasonable, rational debate, uh, it, and and it doesn't really help anything. All it does is is kind of expose um, a, a darker side of your your character that that doesn't really belong in in trying to, to come to a, a good conclusion. Um, anyways, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, a, a good example of this, if you listen to like like five minutes of Bill O'Reilly's talking points, you're sure to hear loon, idiot, moron, all those words directed at people who have good opinions. And it's not, it's not necessary to use those words just because you disagree with what someone has to say. To me, that discredits you. That that discredits the person calling someone those names because they, they can't separate personal frustration from rational opinion. Anyways, that's my two cents. Uh, love the show, Jay. Keep up. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Cody from Washington, uh, Washington State. And I just wanted to uh, comment on something that you said in regards to a voicemail on the show recently um, about uh, the boycotting BP thing. And I think that boycotting can be a really useful tool if you get the message out there, out there like loud enough and also if you're specific enough about it. And I think that's really important. That was something that was missing in the BP thing. Like People were saying boycott BP. That was something that was floating around. But what needed to be floating around was boycott BP's ARCO and AMPM. It might be different in other parts of the country, but where I live at least, you really can't boycott BP unless you know that they own ARCO and AMPM. That's the BP logo isn't really, you know, prominently displayed on there. Um, and so, like, I was I was recently talking to this big group of progressives 
and uh, many of them were actually like progressive activists, and they were, you know, furious at BP for the spill and everything. And then when Arcon AMPM was were brought up, and they had no idea that BP owned them, and so you know they they didn't know how to not be supporting BP still. And so I think that's really important to get that specificity out there and say these are the specific these are the actual brands that you can see that you need to avoid. So yeah, like I think that if if people wanted to get together and do maybe a you know a boycott of Koch Brothers products. Then that's something that could be totally doable if someone, you know, made a an app for iPhone and Android that um, just had like a list of the the uh, brands that Koch Brothers Industries uh, produces and that they profit from. And if that app was then advertised like on your show and on and people went out on Facebook and Twitter and really got that message out there that you need to, you know, we all good all liberals should like get this app if not, if they can and if not just to have this list and try to try to go with it. And I think things like that could be really useful. That's just my opinion. Um, also, I just wanted to echo really quick um, what one uh, uh, the person emailed in about the National Bone Marrow Registry. I found out about it because my four-year-old nephew is in need of a bone marrow transplant, and the process is like they really need as many people as possible to sign up because uh, it's like less than a one percent chance that any given person will get uh, contacted to to give uh, bone marrow if they're on the list. But um, the process of matching is so so detailed that it's it's really difficult to find you know a perfect match. So if, if you happen to be that one perfect match for someone, then you could save a life. And uh, and yeah, so you can go to marrow.org and order a kit there. They'll mail it out to you. You swab the inside of your cheeks and send it back. They make it super easy. So yes, I would I would uh, also have that sentiment as well. So all right, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I'm keeping it super simple today. I just want to remind you guys of a couple of uh, vaguely logistical things. First of all, uh, donateyouraccount.com is something that I've been talking about for several months now. Originally, it was uh, simply a uh, kind of a plug-in tool for Twitter and uh, I haven't talked about it enough. It's, it's extremely possible that you missed that it's been upgraded recently to also include Facebook. And so the basic concept behind both of these tools is that it allows you to basically put your trust in me to uh, send out information via Facebook and Twitter that you would want to pass along to your uh, friends and acquaintances on those social networks. And so by, uh, by signing up to donate your account on the aptly named donateyouraccount.com to Best of the Left, you basically uh, can authorize me a maximum of one message per day to be sent out uh, through your networks. And, and basically it just automates the process. You know, so if, uh, if, if I would normally send something out that you would like or retweet or uh, so on, this just automates that process, basically. And of course, I promise to not send anything weird and offensive uh, that'll be sent to your friends. And if you ever uh, feel like you don't want to do it anymore, it's really easy to cancel. So uh, check that out, 
donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. And of course, there's a very prominent link to that right on my website. Secondly, I just want to talk about the membership program. First of all, I am uh, constantly amazed at the fact that enough people have signed up to donate $5 a month. I mean, just $5. Hopefully, I, you know, I sincerely hope that uh, everyone within the sound of my voice does not consider $5 to be a lot of money. Uh, but enough people have signed up that to actually make this show sustainable. I mean, memberships are the vast majority of, uh, of where the show gets its support. And me personally, I mean, I survive off of $5 donations, which is amazing. You know, so given the option between having someone sign up and, and donate $50 a month or having 10 people sign up to do $5 a month, I would go for the 10 people every time. I mean, this is not... Uh, you know, th this is not a big donation operation. I, I much prefer a nice wide base of support because, uh, you know, people end up, they, they have to cancel their memberships all the time. I mean, we are in turbulent economic circumstances to say the least. And I absolutely understand when people just can't maintain uh, their memberships anymore. And so I'm just saying this as a reminder to everyone else, you know, if you haven't signed up and you could, even if you can't do it forever or, or you know, whatever, every $5 donation helps, uh, you know, keep that broad, broad base of support there so that as, uh, you know, others go through hard times and have to cancel, their memberships can be supplanted by new ones coming in. So, you know, although, uh, you know, the show is on fairly stable footing as it is, really the reason that that is the case is only because new people sign up. So I just want to put that out there as kind of a, you know, to give you a better sense of, you know, how things are going, how the show works and that sort of thing. Now, of course, this is the perfect time to thank a couple of members. Uh, Jennifer H. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on January 22nd and has stuck with this sh show since then. And uh, Randy N. signed up for, uh, went, went a little bit above and beyond, signed up for a socialist membership and paid for a full year in advance back on June 14th. So huge thanks to Jennifer and Randy and all the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, by sharing the individual clips on your social networks or by email. That makes a huge difference uh, spreading the word about not only this show, but about progressive programming in general. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right